This episode of the Slash Filmcast is brought to you by Bombfell. Bombfell is an easier way for men to get better clothes. Just visit bombfell.com slash filmcast for $25 off your first purchase. That's bombfell.com slash filmcast for $25 off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Avenger Hardwar. Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, we have a very special guest. Uh, his new book is out right now. It's called Sea of Rust. He's also the screenwriter of a couple of tiny films. One of them is Sinister, and the other one is just a teensy indie film called Doctor Strange. C. Robert Cargill, welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. How are you doing, Cargill? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be back. It's been way too long. It has been way too long, and congrats on not only the uh, overwhelming success of Doctor Strange, but also on the new book, Sea of Rust. Do you want to tell us about uh, this book? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I-, I love that I get to be the guest on this show because uh, a lot of people have been pairing it up with Blade Runner uh, this, this week. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic robot western. It is set 30 years after the robots have completely wiped us out, uh, and now they're fighting each other. Uh, it is, uh, I'm really proud of it. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's, uh, uh, I started out trying to write a pulpy, fun robot pew pew book and ended up writing something, uh, that I think came out a lot better than just that. So, uh, it's, uh, hopefully, hopefully people enjoy it. I saw that you picked it up. I'm, I'm hoping you enjoy it. Yeah. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I have it. It looks awesome. Like the cover art is gorgeous and I'm looking forward to diving in. So yeah. uh, that, that, by the way, is a book title somebody should really use. Robot Pew Pew. Just <laughs> I would read that too. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of what I I wanted. The whole reason I wanted to write it, I wanted to write a you know a story where robots you know fight and you know go head to head, and then ended up writing something about AI and our own future and and uh, the uh, the human experience and uh, uh, and people have been reading it and watching Blade Runner and making. Uh, comparisons, which I think is very kind to even say that in the same breath. So uh, <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, but yeah, Let me we'll be very you... excited to uh, review the film version and talk about how we read the book first. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this question, Cargill. Uh, and you know, I just want to ask you this before we move on. I mean, has it been? Has how has your life changed? Now that you have written a, a Marvel film, aka Doctor Strange, compared to you know, Sinister did very, very well, um, but it was not like on the scale of Doctor Strange. Do you feel like you have more opportunities now? Like people are you know beating a path to your door to to you know hand you options or like what is how, how has uh, how has the success of Doctor Strange impacted your career? Uh, what it's done is it's just unlocked a lot of doors. Uh, I, uh, you know, a lot of people like to refer to things opening doors and this doesn't really open doors, but it's unlocked them. <laughs> the doors uh, are always there. They just, yeah, yeah, yeah. The doors are always there. Like the thing is, is that when you do something like that, all of a sudden everybody assumes that, oh, we could never get him. He wouldn't be interested in doing this kind of a thing. Uh, a friend, you know, a friend of mine, uh, wanted, uh, to bring me on to, uh, adapt his book when a company picked it up and he lobbied for me and they were like, yeah, there's no way we could get Cargill. He's too expensive. Um, and, uh, not knowing that I would have, you know, done that script for scale because that it's my friend's book and I love the book and, and, uh, it was, it's, it's one of those things that 
that you can all of a sudden talk to people and be like, hey, I'm really interested in doing this thing with you. And they're like, wait, what? You want to? Yes, please. No, we'd love to work with mm. you. But then at the same time, there's lots of people who are just like, yeah, no, he's he's good, but he's not what we're looking for on this. So it's just, it's unlocked the doors and gotten me the meetings. But in terms of the way it's changed my life, uh, the only real substantive change is that now when I go to parties, I've done something that people have heard of. Because uh, <laughs> nice. people people would introduce me, and sometimes you have the friend that's like, oh, this is my friend, he's a screenwriter, and people light up, and they're like, oh, you write movies, have you written anything I've heard of? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I wrote this movie Sinister starring Ethan Hawke, and they just blank stare and be like, I've <laughs> never heard of that. Um, oh, I don't watch horror movies. Uh, but you say Doctor Strange, all of a sudden they, they like pop up, like they physically react, and they're like, wait, the Marvel movie? Oh, Oh, I've seen that. That I like that movie. And so uh it it that's the big substantive change is at parties all of a sudden it's easier to talk to people. Well, that is awesome. Uh and again, congrats on on the book and the movie. It's great to have you on today. Uh before we begin today, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about what's going to happen on this episode of the podcast. Um First of all, you can find more episodes of the show at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. And today, uh, pretty much all we're going to be doing is discussing Blade Runner 2049. There is a lot of stuff to talk about with regards to Blade Runner. I mean, there's just so – it is such a dense work that I – you know, I told uh, Devendra and Jeff, I said, I think we should just do a full episode nonstop Blade Runner and they're like yes it's that's a good idea because uh, lots to talk about many many things I want to pick your guys brain about so uh, that's basically what we're doing today but uh, a couple things we want to address uh, up top in this episode of the show first of all uh, last week we put the call out for people to share your scariest movie theater going experience uh, and we were going to pick three people to win a blu-ray of a ghost story the newest movie by David Lowry uh, and so many people, the dozens of people submitted their stories of um, of terrifying incidents at movie theaters. And uh, the winners of the contest were Dylan P. from Philadelphia, Jake Sturdivant from Great Falls, Montana, and Mandy H. from West Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Congratulations to those people. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for entering the contest. And you will be getting your Blu-ray soon. Guys, I do feel the need to read Jake's entry into the contest because I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Jake writes in uh, to slashfilmcast at gmail.com, The scariest movie-going experience for me by far was The Ring, the American remake of the Japanese classic horror film. It was October of 2002. I was 12 years old and just starting seventh grade, and all my friends wanted to go see this new horror film, The Ring. The trailer had us all salivating. So my friend Brady and I decided to go see it on the upcoming Friday, the day it's released. One problem, that same night, my parents forbade me from seeing it. I was raised in a conservative household, and the content was iffy, to say the least, in my parents' eyes. So Brady and I hatched a foolproof plan. We tell them we're going to see Sweet Home Alabama, also in theaters at the time. Yes, the Reese Witherspoon vehicle. 7.30 p.m., showtime, lights dim, trailers play. My group of friends and I gossip throughout the entirety of the film. Uh, I'm sorry, throughout the entirety of the pre-roll. And then the film queues up. All of a sudden, I'm consumed by images I both can't comprehend and find completely terrifying. The seven days concept, the horrifying images on the video itself, the undeniably creepy direction from Gore Verbinski, I was utterly horrified. I go home. My parents, still awake and in the living room, ask me how I liked Sweet Home Alabama. I was still reeling from images of fucked up horses and fingernails being ripped off and shit, and I got to try to fake my way through a description of my thoughts on this Reese Witherspoon joint that I hadn't seen, but they had. (laughs) (laughs) 
I faked my way through it, presenting vagaries and parroting things I'd heard from friends say about the movie, and I got off easy for the night. But the ring haunted me so badly, I had to sleep with the lights on. This raised eyebrows, especially when I slept with the lights on the next night and the next night and the night after that. Needless to say, they figured out I hadn't seen the movie I said I was going to see, and I ended up grounded for an entire month. And even though I'm a huge horror movie fan now, I have to admit that no movie has ever shaken me to the core the way The Ring did, and I doubt anything ever will. That email comes in from Jake. Uh, That's the cinephile's version of uh, getting drunk and being hungover the next day and trying to (laughs) not let your parents know that you were hungover. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually re- that that is very similar to what I was reminded of. I was reminded of my, the first time I got drunk at a friend's house and uh, uh, walked home and end up going in. And my mother is watching the PBS version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And that animatronic lion is talking right to the screen and freaks me out. And, <laughs> and so I'm like, the, Mom, the lion, the lion is talking. And my mother just thinks I'm doing a bit. And uh, she's, she's like, Chris, you're just so weird sometimes. And so I stagger into my room with my mom totally missing the fact that I was drunk off my ass. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, and then figuring it out later. So I- that story without the ring. So <laughs> I just thought it was hilarious. The guy, this idea of this guy trying to tell his parents the plot of Sweet Home Alabama, having just seen the ring. Like, I can't, I can't imagine <laughs> well, what that description terrified was. of the ring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty amazing. Well, thanks, everyone, to enter, for entering. And again, uh, a ghost story. Those Blu-rays are on their way to you. Cargill, have you seen a ghost story yet? I have not. I've been meaning to see it, and it's one of those things that everybody tells me I'm going to love mm-hmm. that I just have not had a chance to get around to it because of my schedule. Uh, yeah. You know, Cargill, to be honest, uh, you know, I've read your reviews. I'm not sure if you'd like it, but uh, I am curious to hear your thoughts on it. So, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely share them uh, when you have watched that movie. Uh, all right. Anyway, before we get to our review, uh, we need to talk about something a little bit more serious. Three weeks ago... We had Andy Signore from Screen Junkies on this podcast. Then, one week after that, we discussed how we in the film community needed to do more to be inclusive and create a safe space for all kinds of people, especially women. Last week, a couple of stories hit the news that were relevant to this conversation. Harvey Weinstein was revealed to have sexually harassed many women over the course of the past few decades. And Andy Signore was revealed to have done similar things during his time at Defy Media, which owns Screen Junkies. In the time since those revelations came out, both men have been fired from their positions. We did not know about any of the allegations against Andy before we invited him onto the show. If we'd known, we never would have done so. And I feel like this is an opportunity for all of us uh, here on this show to reflect on, on how we treat each other and how we treat each other in the film community and also how we can be more inclusive. And I want to talk about that a little bit later. But... We're seeing these events ripple out on a large scale with uh, people like Harvey Weinstein and on a smaller scale with people like Andy from Screen Junkies, as well as people like Harry Knowles from Ain't It Cool News. Uh, now, see, Robert Cargill, before you were uh, a successful screenwriter, you actually wrote for Ain't It Cool News. You live in Austin, I believe, right? And, oh, yeah. Um, uh, Harry Knowles, obviously a very big figure on the Austin film scene, uh, and he's recently dealt with some pretty serious accusations of sexual assault as well. Uh, I was wondering what your perspective on this as a as an ex employee of Harry. Well, it's I mean it's 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 a very 
very crazy experience. We've, we've had a very harrowing few weeks here in Austin because of all this. I mean, especially personally. I mean, Harry was the first guy to give me my first break. I was a, when I first started writing for him, I was a 25-year-old video store clerk. Like, I was, I was literally just a guy working in a video store that had become friends with Eric Vespi, who he liked my writing and was like, you should, you should be writing for us. Uh, and uh, so Harry, you know, I worked for him on and off for 10 years. Uh, I lived three blocks from him. He, he literally lives walking distance from my house. Um, so this was something that hit us all very, very hard, uh, because I know every single woman who made claims against him. And, uh, you know, most of them are friends. Uh, some of them are good friends and, uh, this hurt a lot. This is not an easy thing to be going through, but it is a necessary, evil that we have to go through a necessary thing where finally the women in our community are realizing that they are not surrounded by guys who are all going to side together, but instead that we are a community that supports one another and loves one another and they can tell their stories and we will get rid of these guys regardless of who they are. I mean, uh, uh, Harry is responsible for me being here for me being on this show. Um, you know, it goes way, it goes that far back and yet I'm furious with him. And, uh, I can't, I, it's very hard to express how angry I am that this person who's done these good things for me treated other people so poorly. And, uh, and the thing is, is a lot of us are hurting. A lot of us are upset and we have every right to be, um, there, the people who do this to other people, people who treat people this way have no right to reap the rewards of success the way they do. And seeing how long Harvey Weinstein got away with it, seeing how long, um, you know, Harry got away with it, seeing, you know, how long Faraci went on, Devin Faraci, who triggered this whole thing, um, uh, went on, uh, doing what he did without anybody noticing. Uh, I think the days of people not noticing are over. I think the days of women thinking that all the men around them aren't going to get their backs are over. And I think this is going to get worse before it gets better as we find out a lot more people because pe this is people, this people keep falling. And as a result, uh, women are getting the, uh, the support they need. They're getting the, uh, they're, they're, they're becoming brave enough to come out and share their stories. And as a result, we are seeing these people being removed from their places. And I don't think it's going to stop until we've gotten almost everybody. So this is the beginning of it. Uh, I hope it's the last person that you guys have had on your show. I hope it's the last person that I know personally. Um, but uh, I don't think this is going to end anytime soon. I think this is only going to keep snowballing until this community is a safe place for everyone. Well, on that note, we want to do what we can here on this podcast to be more inclusive of diverse voices. We are taking suggestions right now um, that people may have for people who we should have as guests on this show. If you have a suggestion for someone who you think should be a guest to speak on a lot of uh, these issues, both in real life and in film, that you think would be a valuable contributor, please let us know at slash filmcast at gmail.com. I will make uh, a separate request related to that one, which is please email us this request as opposed to tweeting at us the request 
because when you tweet at us, it kind of is a little awkward. It, it puts us in a weird situation where like I, I need to follow up like right there and then with the person or else it's like gets weird. Uh, mm-hmm. Cargo, you probably had this happen to you, right? Like oh you- oh yeah, no, all the time I get uh, fans who tweet at me and tweet at their favorite podcast saying, "Hey podcast, you should have this guy on the show." And the podcast is like, "We don't know who that guy is. We have no relationship with him." And I'm like, "I've not heard of this podcast." <laughs> but you you feel that obligation of like, well, I have to say something. Um, you know, it happens a lot. There's a bunch of people who want me to go on the collider shows, which I would love to go on, but they're out in LA and, uh, I'm in Austin. And so they're like, we would love to have him, but he's never around. And I'm like, I'd love to be there, but I'm never around. So this is just <laughs> awkward. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, so, so don't make it awkward, but yeah, we are uh, looking for your suggestions of, of who to invite on. We're going to take it really seriously. Basically when this show started, we had a guest on almost every single week. And we've kind of let that slide. I don't know that we, you know, we, we won't necessarily have a guest on every single week just because it takes an enormous amount of time to plan and execute these, these guest appearances. But uh, we will do everything we can to make sure uh, a wide variety of voices is included on the show. And so uh, help us out. Email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Let us know who you want to hear on the show, and we will try and work it out. Um, so all that said, it's very difficult to transition from something serious to uh, something more fun. Uh, but we are going to try to do that and get to our review of Blade Runner 2049. I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? Your police plan on taking me in. I would much prefer that to the alternative. Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. That was from the trailer for Blade Runner 2049, new film by Denis Villeneuve. It stars uh, Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, uh, Robin Wright, and Jared Leto. And I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. A young Blade Runner's discovery of a long-buried secret leads him to track down former Blade Runner Rick Deckard, who's been missing for 30 years. Uh, and you know, I, I will say that uh, it is a bit of a bummer that the Deckard appearance was spoiled by all the marketing for this movie. I mean, he's in the Massive poster. Bummer. You can't uh. you cannot walk into the theater without seeing Deckard on the poster. Could you uh, imagine what it was like? What it would be like if we didn't know he was in this movie, though? It would uh. be pretty mind blowing. Would be pretty mind blowing. Yeah. So, so uh, there is so much to discuss. I want to start by talking about the original Blade Runner, uh, directed by Ridley Scott. I had a chance to go see this movie at the Seattle Cinerama, which is one of our fine theaters here in Seattle. Uh, And it was the final cut of 4K restoration, which I thought was a little weird because I feel like the final cut didn't come out that long ago. So restoration makes it sound like, oh, we found in the archives this final cut film reel that we had to clean up. Um, But it was a a 4K quote-unquote restoration of... Blade Runner, the final cut. And guys... It, it, it was probably the source for the for the Blu-rays and stuff that we got for the final cut. Very likely, very likely. And uh, guys, it was incredible. It looked and yeah. sounded amazing. I mean, it looks like they could have made that movie three to four years ago. That, that's mm-hmm. how good 
the, I, even today, I mean, I think it holds up pretty well. It, it's the special effects that they put in, or the visual effects, as you say, they put in, uh, look spectacular, and it's it really feels like what Scott's vision for that movie was uh, when he finished it. You know, like it, it feels like just the final cut. You know, the final uh, realization of what he was going for, uh, including what I would consider one of the more haunting final shots of any movie. And I, I want to ask you guys this, like going into Blade Runner 2049, did you have any mm-hmm. opinion on whether uh, Deckard was a replicant? Because for me, uh, the, the final cut seems to indicate that he is in my oh, opinion, yeah. right? Like it yeah. doesn't just indicate it. It <laughs> says it outright. <laughs> Replicants I, have an orange flash in their eyes. And there is a shot going across where Deckard is in a dark room and his eyes are orange. He is clearly, they say without actually saying the words that Deckard is a replicant. I mean, I think it's a little bit more like the shot you're describing. He is in the background and uh, he's out of focus. You know, so but that being said, yeah, agreed, Cargill. I, I think it's yeah. clearly meant to indicate that he's supposed to be a, re- a replicant. Well, what, but what else does the unicorn dream mean? Yeah, you know? well, that's the thing. So the unicorn dream that's is it. the idea is that he has this dream while he's playing piano of a unicorn kind of running through this forest. Mm-hmm. And the final shot is, I think, Gaff is the character's name, right? Played by Edward James Olmos. Yeah. Uh, he has he's been folding origami creatures this whole movie. And he folds a unicorn that he leaves on Deckard's floor, like right right outside his door, indicating that he – like that, the, the implication is that the unicorn dream is a, a memory implant of some kind, mm-hmm. right? And that Gaff knows this uh, and that he has kind of let Deckard go despite the fact that he knows yeah. this. Right? I, I think those early scenes with Deckard and the police captain make more sense when you consider that he's a repli- uh, replicant just because – the way the captain interacts with him, right, is very standoffish. He's not just like a dude that he doesn't trust. He's like, you look at those scenes, like he is a dude that, you know, he, he doesn't really, um, yeah, believe this dude. He doesn't really believe Deckard or he doesn't really, he's not convinced he can actually do this job. He's very hesitant about him. It bothers me. I have to be honest that, Mm -hmm. uh, new cuts seem to make a very clear, decision on this point because i growing up the magic of blade runner was that you could have an argument was that you could Mm -hmm. make a case and i I still don't think it's quite as clear-cut as cargill says it is but it's pretty clear-cut but i don't you could still have an argument i think there's still some room for ambiguity is what i'm saying yeah and they added in the stuff in the director's cut and that was like what 92 so it was still a while ago all the all the final cut did was spit you know make the special effects a little better i if i might put a little sidebar in here Please. uh when we made sinister uh we've got these scenes in which uh the daughter is ashley is painting on the wall and i was very insistent from the script and with the art department that she's painting unicorns on the wall and everybody thought okay cargill just has a thing for unicorns <laughs> not not even realizing that what i was doing is it was my s- small little subtle blade runner joke of telling the audience that she's the killer Uh, so and and in fact scott didn't realize it until we did the uh uh, until we did our um our dvd commentary commentary. Mm -hmm. yeah and uh he was like wait why is there a blade runner joke in my movie and i'm like (laughs) because i put it there that's why so Uh, it'd be safe to say you're a fan of this film then cargill huh 
I'm a, I'm a big fan of this film. I love it. I think it's a, um, it's, I love films that not only are great films, but have a very interesting history about how they came to be. And Blade Runner is one of those special films that the reason why it's so visionary and the reason why the visuals, um, translate so well, even now is because Hollywood went on strike and it pushed the movie back a year and Ridley Scott refused to stop working. So he let the art department work for a solid year, designing things, taking all the time they needed to get it right. And so they really were able to take the time to make something truly visionary that was unlike anything else we had seen and inspired science fiction for 40 years afterwards. Uh, and I, that whole concept of being in the right place at the right time to create a masterwork like that just fascinates me. And then of course the movie is just, there isn't, there aren't other movies like it, like in, as we'll get into in, in uh, 2049 in how it moves on being a sequel, it plays by those same kind of rules that Blade Runner plays by cinematically uh, that we just don't get movies like, and mm -hmm. that is amazing in its own right to watch a film that is both a tangible science fiction story and something of a tone poem is amazing. Um, the fact that you can just kind of sit and chill out and vibe to that movie without it being very, you know, uh, as action packed as you might think a movie like that would be is just really uh, uh, something special. And mm -hmm. the fact that we all uh, carry this movie around as one of the greats without it, with, without it having the centerpiece, like, Oh my God, this chase scene, or Oh my God, this fight scene is better than any other kind of scene. It's like, no, as a film, it's just better than most other science fiction. I mm -hmm. think it's just astounding. Yeah. I, I think like Blade Runner is a, is a movie that feels groundbreaking even today. Like, that's yeah. the thing. And those sorts of movies are rare. I think of, like, 2001. I, I think of, like, The Shining, like, films that just have done things we've never seen before, but still have such a lasting impact and, you know, have uh, had such a great legacy. It's such a rare thing. Jeff Canato, what were you going to say? Uh, I was just going to say yeah, that the, you know, uh, like Cargo was saying about the, um, there's no one action sequence. There's no one moment. There's no right. one thing that makes Blade Runner Blade Runner. And honestly, the... The star is the art direction. The star is the feeling of this vision of the future, this place that feels so vast and deep and fully thought through. Uh, and, and it seems like a real – like he's, he's showing us snippets of a real world that exists and, and how – uh, there's no, you know, there's no opening crawl to tell you what's happened up till, well, there actually is, but you know what mm -hmm. I mean? There's no, <laughs> there's no <laughs> attempt to have to set you in a place. You're just thrown into that place. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and that place, uh, feels like a real place. It feels, uh, cohesive and it doesn't feel like a movie. Uh, and I think that be the best science fiction feels that way. Oh, I would, I just to back that up, I would say that, yeah, I agree it with the starring and I would say that the co-star is that score that the score with right. the art direction, that's what Blade Runner is. Vangelis, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, For sure. classic, one of the, one of the classic scores, uh, in film history. Uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting watching this movie another time is, uh, you know, I, I saw this movie with my fiance. We had a great time at the Cinerama. Uh, both of us were uh, upset at how rapey uh, it was. There is a scene where Deckard 
kind of uh, is like force kissing Rachel that was like yeah. ups- like upsetting in you know it's that like, like early eighties romance guys Rocky right. has a very very similar and, scene and this like movie, oh you can't leave this room I, I'm th- gonna this have to movie kiss you. Uh, this movie retcons that in a pretty big way and I, yeah. I, I kind mm. of had a problem with that honestly yeah. but so let's yeah. let's get into that later but one other thing that I uh, thought was notable was. Uh, that this movie is basically like a a film noir in a sci-fi setting, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I tweeted this out last week after I saw it. I said, uh, uh, is it just me or is Deckard not a very good Blade Runner? Every replicant in the film gets a jump on him, and he makes the classic mistake, falling in love with his target. He only survives the ending by sheer chance and by Roy Batty's compassion. Uh, And Tasha Robinson tweeted back at me, it feels like a classic film noir trope. The PI who's a patsy who only gets to the bottom of the case via luck and his target's hubris. I honestly think a lot of gumshoe stories just aren't very well-constructed mysteries, and the Mm -hmm. tropes are designed to let PIs fail through. Uh, And then Russ Fisher responded, the big sleep seems like the paramount example of this, where even the filmmakers didn't know how the story worked. Uh, Tasha says she agrees. I'm also bumped out of any story where the lead runs out of clues, but picks up the trail after someone beats him to warn him off. (laughs) Um, So I I thought those were interesting reflections on the kind of Blade Runner as film noir. Uh, And, you know, I think the first time I saw it, I was a kid and expecting kind of a sci-fi action movie. It's definitely not that. It's it's very much like you guys say. It's like a mood. It's production design. It's score. Um, and that's well, because it, as a kid you come to it and and it's got Indiana Jones and Han Solo in it, <laughs> right? And like robot killers in it, you know. So you yeah. think it's going to be um, uh, a uh, like this slam banging action movie, but it's not that at all. What, speaking of action, though, there is one other thing I wanted to bring up. There is this moment when I think her the character's name is uh, Pris. Is it in the original Blade Runner? Blade Runner. Uh, where she kind of uh, literally is like on top of Harrison Ford's character Deckard, and like uh, in the final cut, she like reaches and like puts her fingers into his nose and then spares yep. his life. Yeah. And I think a lot of people actually interpret that, you know, to Cargill's point, that like a lot of people interpret that as her recognizing that he is actually a replicant and sparing his life. Um, do you guys know what moment I'm talking about? Like, yes. yeah, yeah. Do you, is that how you interpret that moment, Cargill? Is do you have any? Uh... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's the thing is this is why uh, it's one of the things I've always felt about Blade Runner, and why I think Blade Runner works despite those tropes that you're talking about here is the replicants are fully aware that he's a replicant too, and they feel pity for him because he doesn't realize it. Right. Yeah. And he doesn't realize that if he knew what he was, he would be fighting for this too. And they're giving him a chance at life because they see how valuable that life is. They don't think life is cheap. They don't think that uh, they should just kill this guy and get it over with. They want him to realize so that he too can uh, fight for the same things that they want. I think the story doesn't work if Deckard isn't a replicant. I think it falls mm-hmm. into those tropes that you're talking about where it's just a poorly written poorly structured noir film but as soon as you enter the fact that Deckard's a replicant into every single one of those scenes it all makes complete and total sense it's so much more interesting if he's a replicant and that's generally how I try to read stories like what is the more interesting reading here and also like uh, honestly the replicants he's facing aside from Roy who has a tendency to like you know gouge eyes out uh, they we haven't seen them do bad things you know these are beings living beings fighting for survival and there's this asshole cop also leon i would say yeah also leon yeah 
But also there's this, you know, there's this asshole cop who's basically hunting them down. What was Snake Lady doing? What was Pris doing? You know, like they they were just trying to live. They just want more life. And I think the more you watch that movie, the more you start to sympathize with them. Because, uh, you know, basically Deckard is just like this police drone who's doing this job without really understanding, like, what they're trying to do. Uh, Priscilla Page, I think it was today, made the point that she thinks that Roy Batty is actually the hero of the movie. Oh, yeah. We're following the protagonist, but the hero of the movie is definitely Roy Batty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, some people view Deckard as actually the antagonist of the movie. Like, you could imagine a movie where Roy Batty was the protagonist. Uh, yeah. And that would, that would be in... Uh, he certainly has the more heroic ending and yeah. the more... You know this sacrificial ending. I have well, one of the great endings of all time. I would say, yeah, like, one character. of the great yeah. movie endings that like people know that line of dialogue, which apparently I think was partially improvised. Uh, it, it's it's a line of dialogue that like has been repeated, has has been the basis of many other works. You know, it's, it's cultural amazing, relevance, Dave. So cultural much cultural. Relevance. It's got cultural relevance coming out of everywhere. It's amazing. Coming out of its, it's an, nose it's, holes. It's spectacular. Uh, last, you know, final scene for any character in the history of film. Um, but I, I gotta say, to to stand up for teenage me, <laughs> <laughs> who argued vociferously that he was not a replicant, uh, <laughs> I don't think I will take a priori that it's a more interesting movie if he's a replicant. I, I, I think that there is a case to be made that. A movie about no humans is less interesting than a movie about a bunch of non-humans. And the fact that he's a human bumping up against these non-humans and having to come to understand that they are important is a pretty interesting fucking movie, guys. So I don't think you can just write off, oh, it's more interesting to say he's a replicant. The fact that a human would come to value and fall in love with and see uh, poetry from and – you know, have an understanding of a new form of life, I think is a pretty interesting movie also. I mean, he just wants to, he wants to screw that one replicant. And that's really, you know, as, as the no, human. No, I think you, he, comes, he comes to view Roy Batty's sacrifice at the end. I, I always took away that moment as a moment of, of transformation for Deckard because he sees what this thing is. He understands that it is, it has value in and of itself yeah. and is, you know, that, that moment for a human to, to witness that rather than just another replicant. I think, I think there's a compelling case to be made. Yeah, there is, there is a decent arc there. So I, I agree with Jeff. Um, I also think, uh, you know, Sarah Gailey wrote this piece for tour.com. It oh, was yeah. interesting. Yeah. It called, it's called, uh, this lo- future looks familiar watching blade runner in 2017. She frames the story as follows. Um, Quote, there are cops and there are little people. There is a whole class of slaves. It is illegal for them to escape slavery. The cops are supposed to murder the slaves if they escape because there is risk that they will start to think they're people. But the cops know that the slaves are not people, so it's okay to murder them. The greatest danger, the thing that the cops are supposed to prevent, is that the slaves will try to assimilate into the society that relies on their labor. Assimilation is designed to be impossible. There are tests, Mm -hmm. impossible tests, with impossible questions and impossible answers. The tests measure empathy. It's not enough having empathy, but you must have empathy for the correct things. If you do not have enough empathy for the correct things, you'll be murdered by a cop who does have empathy for the correct things, end quote. So lots of uh, subtext to mine uh, in the original Blade Runner, certainly. And also, like, issues as well, like watching that movie now, like, you know, for a movie that is so steeped in Asian culture and other cultures, yeah, it's a very white movie, too. Like, it's not a very diverse 
cast, and I think that's an issue that kind of applies to the new one as well. Well, the, yeah, there well, but, there are a lot of Asian sub characters, but the Asians are all mm-hmm. in a role of subservience, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they are kind of like on the side. They're in that gigantic screen, you know, that woman, the geisha woman, who's like eating things the whole time in that screen. And the people, yeah, who, she's not a character. Yeah, she's <laughs> the people who help decorate out with like finding, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like the the serial number and that kind of stuff. Jeff Yang, um, the uh, writer, uh, put it really well. I think he he said this is a a version of the future that's an Asian future. Hold the Asians, which I thought was a, <laughs> a brilliant way of describing movies like Blade Runner twenty forty nine, as well as especially uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, yeah, as Firefly. well as the new the new Ghost in the mm-hmm. Shell. Uh, yeah, Fireflies like that too. Mm. Yeah. Well, but I think I think uh, I mean in in the context of when Blade Runner came out in '82 and what happened in cyberpunk, the whole that whole movement of science fiction was about Asian culture um, conquering our culture. It was about the death mm-hmm. of uh, uh, American culture and American supremacy, and about what would happen if that culture came into a very white country. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I don't think it's. Uh, a, a deliberate lack of diversity as much as it's a commentary on what our life is going to be like in that, because that was a fear at the time. We saw, you know, Japan uh, was becoming a giant economic power and there was fear that it was going to conquer uh, the American economy. And so that Cyberpunk is very much a reaction to that fear of our culture being swallowed whole by something else. And so it's illustrating that rather than, mm-hmm. hey, let's make let's take Asian culture and appropriate it and then um, uh, put white people in it. I, I think yeah. it's a very it's a very opposite thing. And to look at it through that diverse uh, the through the diversity lens misses the point of what cyberpunk was trying to say. I do want to believe that Cargill. Like I really want to believe that, but <laughs> Just watching this movie today, it is it is kind of rough, and especially like you look at uh you look at Neuromancer, right? Like that is you know seminal cyberpunk work uh, set in Japan, uh, but because of that, like if we were to have a Neuromancer movie, like you bet like that culture will actually be represented. So it's it's just a weird thing. It's a weird thing to always you know rub me the wrong way while watching, it, and then hearing Ridley Scott's comments around when anyone brings up diversity in his films, like his Muhammad so and so comment, which it just shows that he doesn't think about that as much as he thinks about how artistically he's framing this one scene uh but you know less yeah, about the people involved yeah. of course yeah. the, the yeah. other thing to say is that diversity in the 80s was terrible and yes. awful and <laughs> and uh it was you know it was not where it should have been and it still isn't where it should be now so uh, uh, i yeah. do agree with that point i don't want to be i don't want to argue against i'm just framing the you know the whole cyberpunk aesthetic. Right. Bo- both of those uh, things can be true both of those yes. things that you said can be true. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I agree also with Devendra. Ridley Scott's track record on this is not super great. And even today, like I said, we're still seeing a lot of Asian future hold the Asians. Uh, and that is a bummer. Mm-hmm. But uh, all that said, Blade Runner, uh, the original, the final cut, still a towering achievement that uh, deserves yeah. to be watched on a big screen. Uh, the sound mix in our theater was incredible. I mean, it, it just looks and sounds amazing. I'd recommend if you have a chance to check it out, do so. But let's get to Blade Runner 2049. And uh, we're going it, to – it's really not easy to talk about this movie without talking about spoilers. So we're going to try to make the pre-spoiler section as short as possible. Uh, Can I say one, one quick last thing about the first Blade oh, Runner? Oh, please, please. Is that uh, – how crazy is it that it's set in 2019 and here we are in <laughs> 2017? It's just like 
Man, that's nuts. Hey, well, that, that <laughs> actually well, brings we, up a. We that, see the dystopia ahead of us. You yeah, know, so I mean, it's definitely not a bad prediction of what the world will be like in two years. <laughs> but uh, I, I will say also this one thing that I, I think is interesting is Blade Runner 2049 essentially continues the future laid forward in mm-hmm. Blade Runner The Final Cut. So it is, right. for all intents and purposes, an alternate reality. Uh, yeah, and, for sure. And that is nowhere clearer than in the fact that Atari is incredibly successful in the future. And Pan Am is still around, guys. Pan Am still around. Is reference to Soviet Union, I think, in the movie as well. Oh yeah. To address that, there's, there's a very interesting book um, out there uh, on the the physics of science fiction uh, by Dr. Jim. I want to say Kavalkos. Uh, anyhow, he talks about how the the problem with science fiction and Blade Runner is a perfect example of that. Is that there was an assumption by writers that we'd have a revolution in energy rather than a revolution in information. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what we have is a future that the internet doesn't really exist in the way that it exists today. And there's no such thing as social media, but we have flying cars. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is like the perfect example of, Hey, what if we figured out how to have all the energy we wanted, but didn't figure out how to talk to each other better. And, and so I love that they continued that into 2049. Yeah, yeah, great point. Uh, I, I also think it's interesting to see, like, l- let me just say right off the bat that I thought that the technology in Blade Runner 2049 was brilliantly realized because it needs to look newer than um, than what was the technology in Blade Runner The Final Cut, but it, it's not like... Um, it's like an extension of that technology. It's not an extension of, like, present world technology, right? So when you look at screens, they're kind of primitive compared to what we have today, but more futuristic than what they had in Blade Runner The Final Cut. But they've but they've also given themselves an out. They've also mm-hmm. given themselves an out because they contrived this this historical event between the two movies right. yep. that that – you know, put a hold on any kind of technological advance. So, which is kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant because it makes this movie so much more oppressive than the first one, even. But so there were three short films uh, released between uh, these two. I would highly recommend watching uh, the anime one by Shinichiro Watanabe, who did Cowboy Bebop. And it looks incredible. Yeah, has yeah. a soundtrack so, so by Flying Lotus. So watch that. Denis Villeneuve uh, t- contacted like three of his director friends, or two of his director friends, I should say, Jake mm-hmm. Scott and uh, Watanabe, to uh, direct three short films that cover the events leading up to Blade Runner 2049. So did you guys watch these movies before or after the, the watching Blade Runner? Um, I, I, saw them, I saw all three of them after. David yeah. Gray, you saw them? After, yeah. After any, uh, Jeff and Cargill, did you guys watch these? I haven't watched them yet. Okay, Cargill. I haven't. I haven't watched them yet either. It's, okay. Uh, I I've kind of been turned off recently by the uh, whole notion of added material I, to a film. Yeah, I, I don't think you should have to do homework for watching a movie. Uh, I'm I'm down with there being extra stuff, but knowing that I was going to talk about it with you guys, I wanted to be able to dissect the film as the film without the extra materials there. Right. I, I think that's a good call. That's a good call. That being said, I have seen that anime short. It's like 15 minutes long. It is incredible. Oh, it is it's like so beautiful. It, it yeah. is its own like it stands as its own brilliant work, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So we need the, a feature length like Blade Runner universe movie in that style. Yeah, it's I agree. So it, it looks amazing. So it's it just is it's worth checking out Cargill after you uh, uh, after we do this discussion. So okay. So as I was saying, uh, we are going to do uh, a very short non-spoiler section, and we should say that um, uh, you know a, a couple words about how this movie is doing. Uh, not very well at the box office. Uh, and some people are saying that part of that 
it, you know, it made around $30 million. Um, some people are saying that part of the reason it's not doing well is because they were so intensely secretive about what this movie was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've revealed almost nothing about the plot. Uh, they did give away the Harrison Ford Deckard, you know, role in the movie, but uh, that's that's about the only major spoiler they drop. E- everything else, like they tell you nothing, and they were very like I believe in uh, for screenings they told critics like they had a whole list of things that critics were not supposed to reveal in their pre-release reviews. Uh, so we'll try to be uh, you know as circumspect as possible with the plot details right now in our pre-spoiler section, uh, and we'll get to spoilers pretty quickly. Car. Gil, though, what were your overall thoughts on Blade Runner 2049? Uh, I, I really dug the hell out of it. Um, it was uh, it was exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, there's a lot more to get into in the, the spoiler section, but I will say uh, overall, I was disappointed with the film watching it at first uh, because there is a through line which seems incredibly obvious uh, and then the film goes in a very different direction from where I thought it was going and pulled the rug out from under me in a way that I really, really did not expect and really enjoyed. And it flipped me from wanting to love it to loving it unabashedly. Um, so it really did. Uh, it, it's a wonderful piece of storytelling. It's it's masterfully shot and put together. It's so audacious in its scope. I can't believe uh, they got away with it. So uh, it is it is one of those films that I don't care how it performs at the box office. I don't care if it's considered a flop. I'm just thrilled that it exists. Mm-hmm. Agreed completely with that last point. Uh, Devendra, how about you? What are your thoughts on Blade Runner 2049? You know, I, I, I was okay with it. That was fine. <laughs> no, no, guys. This movie, it's a miracle. It feels like a miracle. This is a sequel nobody wanted. Fans of the original and regular audiences, like who who wants a ponderous AI movie other than like you know original Blade Runner fans and even us, like we are very protective of that first movie. A bad sequel could it could just be a bad thing, you know. We it's not something we want. This movie astounded me on every level. Um, I think after Arrival, I kind of knew uh, Denny would be perfect for this. Just his visual sense. He's very artistic and very purposeful about his imagery, and he has a very distinct directorial style. And that's something not many directors have today, honestly. Like that's one thing I miss from older Ridley Scott movies, like between this and Alien. Um, they they just look incredible. He had a distinct style he was going for. Um, I think it really extends the themes of the original in many ways, too, like the themes around artificial intelligence and how humans coexist with it and really how humanity changes and maybe gets worse uh, when when like the idea of something comparable appears, like something fake, like does that take away our humanity? Um, the soundtrack is probably the only thing that... Y- it's it's good. It's fine. While you're watching the movie, I don't think it's as transcendental as Vangelis's was, but that's also something I've been you know listening to since I've been a kid. Uh, it's kind of ingrained in my soul, so I feel like nothing could live up to that. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, loved everything about this. I could watch this movie like past three hours. I feel like they could have gone even further. And there are definitely some issues. There are some plot lines that they bring up that I don't think uh, – they even needed to reference here. Like it does seem like they're setting up a sequel or something. Mm -hmm. It just felt like it was extending time or something like that. But beyond that, like I love so much of it. It is a, it's, it's a movie that takes its time and we have so few of those today. Jeff Kanata, take it away. 
Well, um, I'm going to say something a little blasphemous. I think this is a better movie than Blade Runner. Uh, I don't think it's a better mm. work of art. I think Blade Runner is a more monumental work of art that left its fingerprints all over everything that came after it. And it's still, as a piece of visual ideas, <laughs> just conceptually, Blade Runner is unmatched. But I think yeah. as a movie, as a moment-to-moment experience that that pulls me into that world, I think this succeeds where Blade Runner never did for me. As much as I have uh, a fondness in my heart for Blade Runner and loved that vision of the future and thought about it a lot growing up, I, ne- I mean, we've kind of talked about some of the flaws of that first movie as far as just from a pure, like, noir mystery standpoint. I never just – I just never thought that it was a very compelling yeah. mystery. And Plot-wise, the, it's very simple. Yeah. Yeah. This movie, though, is. It, it is it, it is fascinating and interesting and full of incredibly exquisite moments. I mean, there are moments of realizing – uh, uh, very complex sci-fi concepts that are just pulled off with such panache and it, it, it's exquisite. It's, it's, we'll talk about them individually as we get to spoilers, but it is a movie full of flair, but it doesn't lose its momentum. It doesn't lose its sense of mystery. It actually features a pretty intelligent main character who is really trying to figure it out uh, throughout, whereas, you know, uh, Deckard in the first movie is sort of just bumbling his way through things. <laughs> he'll, um, he'll put on nerd voice, right? But, yeah, yeah I feel like Austin's right, character has more. What are the tapestries? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Harrison Ford has two voices. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, this, this 2049, I think, is a better just pure ride than, than the, the first movie was. I, I do think it has flaws. I was very disappointed with the end, which we can talk about. Um, I agree with Cargill that there are uh, threads that, I don't know, it, it went pl- different places than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I think it's a must view. It's a must view on a big screen. It's a must view on a big screen with great audio. I was very fortunate. I went to a press screening here in Los Angeles and saw it at the experimental Dolby theater that has impeccable sound. I mean, it's where the guy who introduced the movie to us, he's like, that's where Harrison Ford sat. And that's where (laughs) Villeneuve sat. And like, that's where they screened the movie for themselves because it's like, the best sound Whoa. on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, it is, it deserves that kind of treatment. Find an, mm-hmm. find a theater that, that has it. But the thing that shocked me most about the movie, I think is how much of a pure sequel this is. It really is a sequel. And I never expected that to be the case. I really thought it, it, you couldn't do that to a movie like this. And, uh, well, it, as compared to what, I mean, is it because we've seen so many reboots or remakes lately that you thought it might just be kind of a rehash it might be like the force yeah. awakens of, uh, right. Of the Blade force Runner awakens or, or even better would be, um, um, oh God, my brain's not working. <laughs> the, the Rocky sequel with, um, Creed. Uh, Creed, Creed, right, which I, or, I loved. I love that or, movie. Or like I expected it to be Mad Max Fury Road where it's like, right, yeah, right. this is kind of it tied to the old movies, but we're really using the aesthetic to tell a new story about new characters with one other side character that you know, will allow us to call this a sequel. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's what I, I – Creed was the, is the perfect example of what I thought it was going to be. It's like new generation but cameo by old generation. Right, you know? right. But this movie is a straight-up sequel. It, I think it – 
demands you know the first movie for it to even make sense it is uh, and and i kind of loved that about it like it's mm-hmm. it's a an amazing magic trick and uh i think it's a must watch i think so as well i really uh appreciated the movie i thought it, it's probably one of the top five most beautiful films I've ever seen in my life. I mean, there are shots in this movie that last a few seconds. You know, the opening shot of this movie is Mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. It looks like so much work went into it, and it's just an establishing shot that you see for a few seconds and, like, almost never again for the rest of the movie. And uh, the movie apparently costs around $155 million with rebates, all that money shows up on the screen. It's also a movie that's super dense with ideas. It's one of those movies that I really, really want to talk about a lot. I'm really glad we have the opportunity to do so here on the podcast. Um, but uh, I don't know that I loved it as much as Devendra. I feel like I did have a few issues. You know, uh, Jeff, you referenced the ending. I, I, you know, I don't know how crazy I was about the ending either. Um, I had a few problems with how the story unfolded that I can talk about, but it's all, you know, latter half of the movie. I can't talk about it unless we get to spoilers. So I'll just say I think it's it's certainly worth watching. It's certainly a bold work that demands attention that you should see in a theater. Um, I just don't I, – I didn't leave the movie loving it as I wish I, mm-hmm. I did. And I can, I can have you, have you How theater. many times have you seen it by this point, Dave? I've only seen it once at this point, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I do, so do want to see it again. again. I, I do want to see yeah. it again because I think uh, there is stuff that once you've seen it, once you know you'll you'll view stuff again in a different context yeah. you, so. you're prepared to like <laughs> absorb the movie in a different way when yeah, you rewatch totally. it and i just rewatched it uh on saturday with a couple of friends and i saw the press screening earlier and honestly like certain scenes like the batista scene at the beginning like there there's a lot of stuff that just had me kind of tearing up and had me like noticing little things i didn't notice before uh, it's a movie that uh, just like the first one i think it really will reward rewatching. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I'm planning on going to see it again. That's how much I, mm-hmm. I appreciated it. But um, you know something else that was great about this movie, guys? The coats. Uh, yeah, I mean, fashion in the future is going to be good. It's going to be really good, Ryan Dave. Gosling has this coat that goes up to his like eyes, basically. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. it's to keep out all that, that smaller kids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know anything about fashion, but I can tell you the fashion in this movie it, it blew me away. I wish I could dress like that, but you know – there is a solution, guys, for people like me that don't want to shop and, and want to be fashionable. What is that, Jeff? Just uh, buy everything that you see in a Blade Runner movie. No, it's Bombfell, <laughs> our oh. sponsor. Bombfell. Bombfell. Bombfell, our sponsor, is a way for you to look better without having to put in all of the annoying effort of going to the store and knowing anything about fashion. You get a personal stylist that helps you pick out clothes just for you. It's really cool. I actually did this. I signed up. What you do is you fill out all your sizes and you kind of talk about some of the things, some of the ways that you dress now and whether you'd like to improve the way you dress or kind of stick with that. Give them, you know, some guidelines. It's really easy. It's all a, a little form that you fill out. It takes like not even a minute. And then uh, you get an email from your personal stylist. You get assigned a personal stylist. It's a human being. It's not an algorithm. And that you can interact with that person. And he, that person, uh, he or she will say, here's some of the uh, ideas I have to, for you to your first purchase. Uh, because you say, oh, I'm interested in pants or I'm interested in shorts or I'm interested in a button up or I'm interested in short sleeve. Or, you kind of give them an idea of what you're looking to buy. They say, here you go. What about these? And you can say, well, I like those or I don't like those. And then they send them to you and, and you try them on. And if they fit, great. If they don't, you can send it back. It, it, it's a very simple process. 
I have to say, my bombfell outfit that I got, it's the it's the outfit that I choose when I want to look my coolest now. I, I honestly think it's it's clothes I would never have picked for myself because I just don't have that taste. But my wife loves it. They fit awesome. I don't know how they did it. It's awesome. I, I got this like cool short sleeve uh, button up shirt that has a pattern on it. Uh, I recently had a, a job interview uh, that it looks like I got, by the way. I can't talk about it yet, but I'm oh. really excited about it. And I wore that. I wore that outfit, man, with some cool blue pants uh, that they, I got from Bombfell. It, it is the answer to all my prayers because I just – I really hate shopping for clothes. And it's so easy. And the coolest part is that we're going to hook you guys up with a deal. You get $25 off your first purchase. All you got to do is go to bombfell.com slash filmcast that's b-o-m-b-f-e-l-l dot com slash and then the word filmcast and you'll get 25 dollars off your first purchase which is pretty cool you don't you don't have to buy anything they, you sign up they send you pictures of stuff if you don't like it you don't have to there's no forced buying it's really easy all the shipping is is totally free they ship it to you and you don't like it you ship it back to them it's totally free uh and this is high quality stuff really good looking Clothes, like I said, I don't know anything about fashion, but I know when I look good, my wife tells me. And she loves these clothes too. So give it a shot. Bombfell.com slash filmcast. Thanks to Bombfell for sponsoring us. Let's get to spoilers for Blade Runner 2049 starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Trying to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. Let's start with this topic. One thing we haven't discussed at all is the side characters in this movie. Jared Leto as Nyander Wallace. What do you guys think of that? Uh, What's he he doing in this movie? Cargill, are you a fan of this performance? Uh, I am. Uh, I dig it. Uh, It's it's over the top in a way I think it needs to be uh, because it's very much – he's a mad scientist and he's Mm -hmm. he's very much like the uh, – it's John Hurt from the first one if I remember correctly, correct? that I don't think it was John Hurt. Hurt. Who's the? Uh, I'm blanking the on guy the guy with uh, the big thick glasses. It, oh, who played John. Tyrell in the, yeah. in the first uh, movie? Yeah, um, yeah uh, uh, I don't I'm remember the actor there. Absolutely blanking on that. Uh, Joe, uh, anyhow, Tur- but, Joe, Joe Turkle. Turkle. Joe Turkle. Yeah. yeah, Joe Turkle. That's who it is. Uh, yeah, he's very much doing something similar to that, but in a a much more frustrated way. Like this is a guy who is grasping at this very interesting thread and he can't he can't find it and it's frustrating the hell out of him and he's willing to go to any length to solve the secret that he knows has already been solved and that's what's so frustrating to him and i find that comes out very well in the few scenes that we get with leto jeff it sounds like you weren't quite as positive no i i don't actually have any fault with the performance such as it is uh i just don't understand why this character is in this movie um (laughs) It feels like we're heading towards something really interesting with that character. And kind of like what Devendra was saying earlier, it feels like this is all a setup for some weird sequel that we might get because mm-hmm. there's literally no resolution to this plot line. And I found that very frustrating that, that he seems to be doing something and there seems to be a lot of sturm and drong around it. But to what end and why yeah. does it matter? Like it doesn't – it feels like this weird vestige of a, an earlier draft or some – Thing that the script is is turning its wheels to, to get you to be concerned about, and then 
to what end? I mean, we get mm-hmm. amazing moments with him, like the 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 reveal of Sean Young stepping out is staggering. Like it's it's a gobsmacking kind of purely a piece of film, like special effect technology on display, but also just an unexpected, weird, uh, you know, kind of out of body experience of just like being in this old movie and how much like old Harrison Ford staring at young Sean Young is just, Mm -hmm. is really disorienting, just visual moment. Um, so there's things that I love. I love the, like the look of his lair and all that stuff is all visually very interesting. Oh man. Yeah. But I was very frustrated that there's no even attempt at mm-hmm. revo- uh, resolution with regard to what he's up to. Right. So I mean, uh, w- with regards wait, to his they, lair, go ahead, Cargill. Oh, I'm 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 confused at the moment because I I thought his I thought his arc and his plot and everything his place in the film is is really super obvious. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if I'm missing something or if you guys are, I'm, I'm confused about that now all of a sudden. I'm sure um, it's me that's missing something. <laughs> well, how do you, yeah. how do you view his plot line as having resolved Cargill? Well, having resolved is that he, he, it, it he's, he doesn't have a clear resolution simply because he fails. Um, you know, he's, he's one of the other forces racing for it's very much like uh in terms of noir it's very much like the uh um the maltese falcon mm-hmm. you know everybody's after the falcon everybody's after this one thing we're all after the MacGuffin, and he tries his damnedest to uh get it and ultimately his minion ends up failing and uh ryan gosling ends up being the one who solves everything puts it together and um and gets the the gets the right people to the right place and ultimately he fails because essentially i mean we're in the spoiler section yeah he's he is desperately trying to figure out how to make replicants replicate Mm -hmm. he is trying to find out because he realizes the only way his technology can spread out to the stars the only way man is ever going to conquer the universe is with replicants we're not going to be able to do it in our own flesh and but we do not have the technology to create uh, as many as we need at the rate we need. So the only way to do that is through uh, replication like humans replicate. And mm-hmm. so what we need is to be able to get them pregnant. And he is looking for the primer to solve that, something that Tyrell had figured out how to do. And it's infuriating him that he can't solve what Tyrell solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. that the secret is out there and he's chasing that down. And uh, And so his entire point in this movie is to create that 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 antagonism that that ticking clock that race against time that Ryan Gosling has to beat them to finding this before he finds it. Right. But I don't understand how 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 he fails, right? He he hasn't done it yet, but there's no end point for him. There's no there's no he's you know, just because he hasn't found them yet. I I was very frustrated that the movie ended where it did. Uh, like Devendra, I was ready for you know an hour more of this thing, uh, mm-hmm. but I was very frustrated that it ended where it did because just bringing Harrison, just bringing Deckard to his daughter, it didn't feel like it accomplished anything for anybody involved. Yeah. It was it's, a nice, it's one cathartic the story, yeah, yeah. A cathartic emotional beat. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing saying that Jared Leto has failed. There's nothing saying that he. I mean, well, let, let me say this. Let me say this, Jeff. I mean, I think. The most interesting arc in the movie is Ryan Gosling's 
you know, arc as uh, definitely as yeah, Joe sure. or or K. Officer K, you know, whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever you're gonna call him. Uh, I thought it was completely fascinating. Like when you view it after you've seen the whole movie, right? When you view it, it you know, think of the way he behaves. This is one of this is like another performance that's similar to Drive, in my opinion, where he spends most of the movie not emoting and. Uh, or, or I should say, like emoting one specific emotion, which is like you know stoicism, like very uh, subdued. Um, and the reason is because his entire life he's been beaten down and told that uh, he is less than. You know, his whole life he's been told like you're a skin job, you you get out, you you don't have any place with the the people who you're uh, serving with. Um, you should just get out of here, be gone, and and you're inferior, and. Uh, that that moment when he's uh, inside the chamber with the uh, memory uh-huh. creator, um, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, one of the like every ten minutes in this movie, there was like a scene that I could say I've never seen that done like that. Yeah. And yeah. the the scene with the mem- the memory creation where she's turning the dials to like complete the the memories is just absolutely spellbinding i mean the, the yeah. you know with the blowing the candles out and everything it just it is so mm-hmm. incredible her performance like, incredibly performance realized so yeah, yeah so ethereal and magical oh, oh yeah it's yeah. so it's my so, favorite scene in the movie i think yeah just like, i mean it's, it's I, I, I couldn't blame you it's it's an incredible scene like that's just well conceived well executed and then um, brilliantly written brilliantly written right and then when that woman tells him that in fact uh, his memories are real. Uh, yeah. He interprets I love that. The way she says it too. Yeah. Right. She, uh, she, did, she, didn't, she didn't include the most yes. important information yes. in there, uh, <laughs> but she did reveal to him that his memories are real. And uh-huh. uh, someone it, lived this. Yeah. Imagine, yeah, someone lived this. Imagine, you know, r- coming to the realization that every feeling of inferiority you've had your entire life was false. Right, that that you are actually an extraordinary person, and that every like all those times when you felt like you were lesser than everything else, and you behaved like in your place, um, it was all wrong. It was all a lie. Uh, it was all like uh, like people were telling you that this memory was not real, even though it was. And that's I think the only scene in the movie where he really loses his composure because when you realize the the enormity of that realization. Uh, is going to just completely mess you up. And that's exactly yeah. what it did. Yeah. Then, later on in the movie, he realizes that it actually wasn't a lie. <laughs> and that, you know, feeling like he would, you know, he has that moment yeah. when he's talking with Freysa where he needs to sit down because he's realized that this entire quest uh, where he thought he was the chosen one was also a lie. Like, he had to go back and forth and, you know, and then, you know, try to become more human in the process. Really, Jeff Kanata, you know, the arc in this movie is K's, right? And oh, I, um, I agree. In fact, I will go a step further, Dave. I came away from this movie thinking that is actually what really Scott was trying to do. Like, this movie actualized a, a, a journey for uh, K or Joe that Deckard, I think they were scratching at the surface of yeah. and trying to give us and didn't ever really happen. That's why Roy Batty is the more interesting character in that in the first movie. But I think this is the full realization of what Ridley Scott would have liked us to feel about mm-hmm. Deckard. 
if, mm. if we knew ahead of time. And by the way, how baller is it that they just drop, oh, by the way, how does it feel to ch- you chase your own kind? Yeah, yeah. It's like five minutes into the movie. It's like, oh, man, that is that's a legit great uh, you know, the information reveal because yeah, we've mean, seen it, Gosling for so long, and we didn't env- envision him as as somebody who they would tell us is specifically a replicant. Uh, but another thing, I also love how the movie handled Deckard because it keeps the dream alive. It still balances the idea that he could be a replicant or not, and they 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 kind of balance it two ways, and it's kind of fascinating. Like that's, I'm not a fan of Leto's performance in this movie, but that one scene where he's like, you know, what if you two were supposed to meet each other? Yeah. You know, what if that's how it was supposed to be? Well, and I, yeah. I think that that scene reads very much as as him explaining that they were designed specifically for yes. one another. Yeah. I, I th- yeah. Many people, you know, I've I've looked into this. Many people think it's like it's still ambiguous. Like one thing that people yeah, like about yeah. the new film is that it still leaves ambiguous, whether Deckard is a replicant, you can interpret it either way. Obviously, <laughs> you know, there's a strong argument to be made that he is a replicant. And I think it does add something to the, to the film because of the idea that, that there's this subclass of replicants whose job it is to hunt other replicants, mm-hmm. uh, started, you know, started in, well, in our popular this, consciousness with Deckard and then yeah. continues with K. I think that's it really was the next model, right? Cause he, he, Deckard was hunting Nexus sixes. And we, I think the assumption is that Rachel was somewhat different, right? She was maybe Nexus 7, uh, Nexus that could reproduce, and maybe he was along her lines. It is interesting that, yeah, the next line has to defeat the last line. Oh, uh, before we go further, there's something else I wanted to talk about with Kay, um, something that none of you guys mentioned. Did any of you else pick up on the fact that this is a Kafka res- reference? Um, uh, what are you referring to? Mm-hmm. The, the K is a Kafka reference? Yeah, yeah. Well, his name is Kay, and yeah. the nickname that he gets is Joe. And of course, the main character in the trial um, is it referred to as Kay the whole time, but his full name is actually Joseph Kay. Um, and that the trial is very much a, a story about a guy who's caught up in a story that's much bigger than he is, and he thinks he's the protagonist of it, and he really isn't. Mm. Um, he's just really a side character in a much bigger story, which is exactly what Kay in this movie is. Yes. Kay spends yeah. the entire movie thinking he's the hero, and really he's just this small pawn in the story that we're following. Mm. Very interesting reference, yeah. Um, on the speaking of side characters, uh, we got to talk about the character of Joy, played by Anna de Armas. Uh, I I never would have guessed that of all the movies that inspired this one, Spike Jones's Her would be top of that list. <laughs> I like, mean, there was, there was on, an entire her. her subplot in this movie, yeah. and you know. I understand, like that, like on a on a very uh, literal level, there is this connection between uh, that character and this whole broader idea of um, robots that are supposed to be subservient. Like I, I understand that thematic mm-hmm. connection, but for me, you know, the idea is, I guess you you add these two things together: the joy subplot and you know everything that Kay is going through, and you're supposed to get something bigger than the sum of their parts, right? You're, oh wow, this whole movie is like through and through has this theme. It just never coalesced for me. Like I never felt like. Uh, that plot, that subplot, really got to me in the way that I think it was supposed to. Um, mm-hmm. Divinder Hardware, I mean, were you a fan of the Joy subplot? And oh yes, yeah. I mean, I, it was fascinating. Like, I love that opening scene, right, where he comes home. He's like, "Hey, honey, how's it going?" And she's like, prepping everything. It's so domestic and so like idealized in a way. It's 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 like a '50s sitcom or something, or like a '50s like family film, and. 
it's funny to me like that's that's kind of like what he wants this is a movie that's entirely about you know the replicants wants and desires he wants to be special he wants to be loved and her like her side of it is really interesting too because i do think after a point we get the sense that she genuinely cares for him but if she's a product that's designed to be everything you want to see and hear does that still qualify as genuinely loving somebody right if if that was if loving someone was as easy as like you know getting an iphone and running the same app as everyone else uh does that still qualify as natural love and i think this movie kind of explores some of that like yeah. when we that that whole exploration like her finding a physical body. I was moved by that scene. And I love how, yeah, she freezes at one point when he gets the call and his illusion of domesticity is shattered. Um, and he's reminded, oh, right, you're not real. She's not real. None of this is real. You can never have that real thing that other humans have. He is in the same way, just like the other replicants, striving for more life. And I think that is, that's what's fascinating about it to me. And yeah, when she, when they destroy her physical thing at the end, like when she is just shattered, that kind of broke my heart. And yeah, it, I felt something there for sure. I, I think ex- the moment in the movie where that plotline resonated with me. See, I, I actually didn't feel that much in that scene. Like I wanted to, I wanted to have my heart broken, and I didn't really feel it as much as I wanted to. But the scene mm-hmm. that really did get to me is um, later on in the movie when Kay interacts with the the naked, you know, hologram, mm-hmm. like gigantor hologram that's used in the um, in the marketing for this movie. Yeah, and, and she says the same lines to him. She says the same lines, to him, and he kind said. of yeah. he makes this realization in that yeah. moment that. He wants to do something. He wants to go beyond uh, his existing programming. You know, like he wants mm-hmm. to do something human, and that human thing is saving Deckard's life, right? In in mm-hmm. his case, and so I, I really that moment was effective for me. But that was the rest good. of it, also, not... by the way, the the three way sex scene. I thought was fascinating, and it, I love how much... really like interesting representation yeah. of that concept. Yeah, yeah, it's very like it's it's so it's so unique, right? And I know some people complain that it seemed too long, but I think what it represents is like Joy's desire and need for a physical body and using you know another replicant, her like an AI using a replicant as a sex toy. Basically, the implications of that are kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, we've never seen a scene like that. That is sort of well, like something. Her. They do it in her. Well, sort of. Yeah, yeah. They do something similar, but it's not visualized in the same way. I thought. I just yeah, thought the way like, it's the visualized, way it feels like down. something out of Black Mirror or something. Really well yeah, done. Yeah, visualization is, yeah. is astounding. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I, I also feel like, uh, you know, kind of reinforcing what I was, was saying earlier, where I think this movie succeeds in ways that the first movie didn't. Uh, this movie takes great pains to try to retcon the relationship between Deckard and uh, Rachel from from the first movie and, and kind of play it as this transcendental love. And yet I think for me the transcendental love actually exists between Joy and uh, and Joe. You know, that yes, it's yeah. it's so much better realized in this movie than anything from the first film. And and I actually kind of felt a little it kind of cheapened the whole idea of uh, of Rachel and and Deckard being some kind of important connection, right? Because I never, it's never treated that way in the first film. And to to try to convince me otherwise, I'm like, no, he kind of is a little bit rough and awful with her in the first movie. Yeah, yeah. And and here we have two characters that actually I do fall in love with them and for them and <laughs> to them. Uh, 
in this film, and I, I it just does it so much better. Mm-hmm. Cargill, but, your, I, your thoughts I, on I that actually, relationship? Uh, well, I I actually like I agree with you guys that this relationship is genius. The brilliance that I find in this relationship, though, is the fact that this is our Deckard, is Deckard a replicant of this movie? Is mm-hmm. Joy real? I don't think Joy's real. I think Joy is merely a representation of, in fact, I've been referring to her as Steve the Pencil. Um, <laughs> if you guys have ever seen Community, there's a great scene where Joel uh, McHale says, I could tell you this pencil's name is Steve, and then he snaps it and he goes, and a little piece of you just broke. The movie spends a lot of time telling us Joy is real without giving us any actual representation that she is. She is nothing but a shadow of what he wants he she is the reflection of what he wants to be and what what he wants is to be real he wants to be a human being he wants someone to believe he's real and so this program that he's bought keeps acting as if their relationship is real and he is real so much so that she gives him a name because she knows that what that's what he wants Mm -hmm. and and I feel that this all comes to a head after she's been smashed and he's standing out on that bridge and we get the giant joy um, standing there talking to him. And all of a sudden it weighs on you that, oh, God, she was everything he wanted her to be. That yes. relationship doesn't exist. And so it is simply a reflect. It's her telling us who he is cinematically. I don't think she's real. And in, in retrospect, can, can you, can you define it, what you mean that. when you say real? I, I'm having a difficult time, Cargill. Are you saying like there was I don't no think actual she's conscious? There's she's no conscious. programmed to be the perfect Oh, I see. I see. Because at one point in the movie, she's like, "Take me with you in this like tiny data stick with you, right?" And because and so, that's what he wants. And so yes, we're inter- yes. we like we interpret that as, "Oh, she has surpassed her programming." And you're saying that that's not true. That she was always supposed to be like that, right? She was always supposed to be like that because yeah. she is a reflection of what he wants, and what he wants is that girl who wants to be with him all the time. Mm-hmm. That's what he really wants in life. And Joy never does anything counter to what he wants joy is just a program i don't think she's conscious yeah i think that's yeah. a totally valid interpretation um, yeah and honestly, yeah, a, i think that's the way i kind of read it too like it's yeah go ahead jeff i was just gonna say what a what a uh, <laughs> terrifying is the wrong word but mm-hmm. uh disturbing or uh, uh <laughs> affecting vision of the future i mean it Knowing, as as I know, as we all know, uh, how messy and complicated and hard interpersonal relationships are just in life uh, with people who are complicated and have needs and you try to be the right person for them. The idea that not far from now there will Mm -hmm. be uh, a product that will just want to be everything you want all the time. And, and the world know, is a shitty place. Like, wouldn't you want that when yeah, you live yeah. in that planet? Well, like, well, how, how, that could yeah. replace. And why would you ever interact mm-hmm. with messy, complicated, real people? When and that's already just- happening, by the way. Like, we're already seeing. Um, I, I think Japan in particular. Like, a, a lot of guys uh, are k- kind of spending more time with virtual girlfriends than you know than actual actually having contact with real they people. Have, yeah. They have a product that actually mm-hmm. does that. That it connects to your phone and to your alarm clock and will wake you up and talk to you and interact with you when you get home. Uh, and it's still very, it's still very messy. It's still very artificial, but it is the beginning of joy like they mm-hmm. actually 
really have that and it's a popular product. It's really, no, you're right. It is a terrifying view of the future. And what's so terrifying is imagine getting into that thing and it's unlike the movie her where in her we always know that this computer is becoming sentient yeah yeah not knowing whether that product is real or not and whether you are really loved or not and whether you're really deluded or not and whether Mm -hmm. your friends thinking you're crazy is that real or not i think that's fascinating yeah i also think we need better language than real for this too like because when you're talking about consciousness and things like that like if if you are interacting with you know this this AI thing that is giving you everything you want and is giving you the same emotional responses and the same sort of like feeling as loving a real person like that is real like that that's that's all we that's kind of what our emotional responses are so at that point yeah then we have to think about it. okay so is it is it a program well, reaction yeah. or is it like is it actually an organic feeling of love and emotion out of consciousness like yeah we, we there's a lot of language there. there's a lot of uh, actual de- and not to get off on a too yeah. far of a tangent but there's a lot of debate in the philosophy world right now around the idea of artificial intelligence and if mm-hmm. if if we create something that behaves in a way that is conscience conscious how do we know it is actually conscious because yep. we have no definition of what consciousness is we don't we don't even know what consciousness is mm-hmm. so if it if, if it exhibits all of the patterns of consciousness how do we know it's not just aping that or if it actually it has this whatever quality consciousness actually is yeah, yeah. and, and we get to a huge the point, ethical problem yeah. yeah when we get to the point where we are in this movie like there is no fundamental difference, right? If you're looking at replicants with uh, natural lifespans and which have the ability to reproduce and which have the same wants and desires as humans, like like th- those are full-fledged humans. That's humanity. And I think that's uh, – I love that that's the central conflict of this movie, right? And Robin Wright's uh, character understands that. Like if, if we start to accept these slaves, these products as real, as the same as us, and their lives are worth the same as us, then that breaks the world. And that's pretty much why I love this movie because it really does try to wrestle with that concept. So let me say uh, just a couple of assorted thoughts. You mentioned Robin Wright's character, Lieutenant Joshi. Uh, can we agree on one thing? Even even if we all really like this movie, can we agree that this police station has the worst security ever known? <laughs> just walk in. Well, I don't know if they're like, is Wallace just like a big shot there too? Like Wallace gives them, maybe Wallace just has access to those things because they're all relying on Wallace products too. So sure, but yeah, but yeah, it so, is still pretty shitty security. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, <laughs> again, going back to what I said earlier, this is still that future that uh, it has a revolution in energy and not technology. Like you're thinking about security in a world where we are right now, <laughs> in which we're doing a live stream podcast yeah. from four different places on the planet uh, that is being streamed all around the planet, and that's technology that seems a little beyond 2049. Well, I, I'm thinking, <laughs> this is, this is by the Wait, this is, by the way, the, the exact same argument I've always made for the Star Wars universe, uh, because I, I can't rectify in my mind the idea that anybody with a sufficiently advanced technology would would stand for shitty blue holograms uh, of, of people. And I've always Staticky thought blue holograms. Right. Exactly. Uh and and so I've always thought, you know, this is a vision of the future where they put all their money into light speed travel. And like and there was no one gave a shit about entertainment. You know, entertainment was not a technology that made money for anybody. And so nobody invested in it. They just everybody was into like 
light speed and laser pistols. <laughs> you know, that was that was the only thing that made money yeah. in this economy. Well, whatever's so. important, right? Right. Not not hologram projections. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Cargill. All I'm asking for is that the security be as good as the you know, uh-huh. building I go to work at every day. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> just, all I'm looking for. Just like a for. pass. But apparently... you go to work at an international information <laughs> company, Dave. <laughs> yes. All right, that's fair enough. Um, I uh, wanted to mention a, a couple of other things real quick, kind of a grab bag of things. Uh, mm-hmm. Niander Wallace's office, you, we were talking about like how amazing it looks. I really love the idea that they used water as the kind of uh, yeah. motif of it. It reminded me of Darren Aronofsky's work in the movie The Fountain. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but um, yeah. Darren Aronofsky, for the special effects of that movie, he was very resolved to use... Uh, all natural things like cells mm-hmm. dividing because he knew that the CG would age really poorly if he tried to yeah. do like some kind of CG creation. He knows that like and CG... chemical effects in water. That's yeah, the, chemical effects in water. Was. Exactly right. Yeah. And he knew that would age really well and I, in, in my opinion it has. I feel like they did the same thing here where, you know, a lot of the water effects in, in the office, like, I think that's uh-huh. just going to age really, really well because, like... Maybe that... not nearly at the same level, though. Like, it, it is clearly, like, light shining It's just down light shining through water, through but it's still really cool. I, of, like, I do, a pool. Yeah. I do also think that it seems to me that there was a concerted effort to make the visual effects in this movie look like optical effects mm-hmm. to, to mirror what we saw from the first Blade Runner. You mean to make it look like it was like miniatures and like the stuff that they used in the first film, right? Yeah, look yeah. rotoscoped, looked like optical right. uh, visual effects, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it, I think it looks great, um, but also uh, water, uh, my fiance pointed this out to me, is that like uh, you don't see that much fresh water in the, mov- in the movie. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when... Uh, K's character takes a shower. It's like it blasts him for like one second, yeah. and it's like ninety nine point nine percent sterile, you know, or whatever, like yeah. whatever it says. Uh, and I think the idea of having like all this water surrounding you, despite its incredible impracticality, is meant to signify luxury, right? And how? Oh yeah, most yeah, definitely, that's most well, definitely. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the first yeah. movie was like surrounded in uh, rain too, and we don't really have that here. Like, I kind of love how the world we see now is even it's worse. Like it's post blackout. Um, I, more people have left the planet because apparently Earth is a bigger shithole. Uh, those opening scenes where you're just seeing like the layers and layers of skyscrapers densely packed in Los Angeles, most of them aren't lit up because like maybe these are people just living without power. You know, power is safe for the uh, the central Times Square area, but not the outer lying part. So like. Mm the vision of a destroyed civilization is much clearer here. And you see that too, when you go to the wasteland, the waste plant of Los Angeles, AKA San Diego (laughs) and the way all that is recreated. um, Entire cities are now landfills, right? In the future. And that's And that dude straight up says, you know, like you have a piece of wood. You must be, you must be rich. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, I think that's Barkad Abdi who says that, right? Yeah. The guy, the yeah. uh, Somali from, uh, pirate from Captain yeah. Phillips. Uh, so speaking of other side characters, Sylvia Hoax, MVP uh, of the who plays so great. Uh, Love in the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's quite as memorable as Roy Batty, aka one of the greatest villains in all mm-hmm. of movie history. But I think she is. Uh, a force to be reckoned with in this movie. She, I mean, I don't uh, even think she's Daryl Hannah, but. <laughs> mm. I, I think she's great. Like she, she, you know, if if Neander Wallace is sort of like this prophet, this sort of like you know, dude, genius with a god complex, but also with an inferiority complex because he can't get replicant, uh, you know, pro- reproduction working. Which is, by the way, that's the real point, Jeff. Like that's what I see in him. He is a 
he is a genius, but he is sort of like a failed, frustrated genius who can't do what the guy before him did. You know, sort of like the head of Samsung trying to be Steve Jobs or something and like that <laughs> yeah. that wow. sort of like Harsh. frustration nope, yeah well he's he's, he's in jail right now isn't he i don't know um uh, i mean that's that's exactly who he is i mean he's yeah. not smart enough to compete with tyrell so he has to be more brutal than tyrell and also like just more more in your face about it is like oh man like I'm, samsung I'm... is more brutal <laughs> Indeed. I, well you know the, go look at the legal issues happening there <laughs> Um, but you know, his, all of his soliloquies, all of his monologuing, all of the idea to like make him sound smart. I do read him as a character that wants to sound smart more than he actually is. Uh, but yeah, he's also somebody who's basically, you know, he's, he's sort of like a prophet in a way. He's sort of espousing this religion of replicant superiority and replicants like will be taking over the world and the galaxy and love as this like fanatic about this like i love how she is um i just love how she portrays that too like uh, towards the end like she has that great scene with uh with robin wright and where she just gets she has her flip out scene right where robin wright tells her they killed the kid and love just freaks out love is like you know what have you done to our savior or to our you know chosen one or something uh, it is pure fanaticism, and I love the way she plays that. Uh, my one gripe with her, and maybe this entire film, is I think that final action sequence, the final sequence in the ship and in the water, goes on way too long. That's something they could have learned from the first one. I, I think it works. I, I think it's hugely ambitious to do mm-hmm. uh, an action scene in water like that. And uh, I, I, I thought it worked. I mean, I think it, it was very... It just goes on forever. I don't know. Just, you could say that yeah. about the whole movie, but I, yeah. I, I really liked it. Um, let me let me also ask you guys about this. Uh, I mean, and there's just a few other points I, I wanted to bring up. One of them is the very final shot. Um, you know, Harrison Ford's character Deckard meets uh, his daughter right in that scene, and uh, Mark Millar had this crazy theory. Did you guys see this? Mark Millar's mm-hmm. crazy theory about this movie, where ask Miller, but... um, sorry, Miller. Um, <laughs> Mark Miller had this crazy theory where he uh, – you, you notice that you know the, the, the penultimate scene in this movie is Ryan Gosling's character you know, dying on the steps of this thing while um, – on the steps of this building while mm-hmm. the snow falls from the sky. And uh, I thought it was kind of a callback to the uh, Tears and Rain scene, right? Um, uh, at least it felt yep. that way to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you know, Harrison Ford's character goes inside and um, – and did you notice that that woman uh, was working on a memory that uh, had snow in it, but you mm-hmm. never saw like what who was in the middle of that memory? Like she was blocking it. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Miller's theory is that uh, that like the whole memory of uh, Kay or Joe was created by that woman to like lead Deckard to her. Uh, that Kay and Joe were like not actually real it's an implant and like you see you saw her like beaming the memory of him in real time to deckard in that final scene um i don't know if that resonates with i'm a little confused by that construction yeah the, Wait, the idea is that she's like beaming memories to deckard in real time and that like that memory of <laughs> ryan gosling's character uh is you know that she created that somehow um, uh, okay. Because it, I mean, otherwise it is just a, quite a coincidence <laughs> that she's working on a snow memory. At the I, same I do. Time. I do like Mark Miller. Uh, whenever he's looking at another property, he's like, "How can how can I twist this in a way <laughs> nobody would expect?" 
All that said, Cargill, what were your thoughts on on the closing of this film? Did it feel like really satisfying to you? Did it feel like you know uh, the the ending this movie should have? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's the. I mean, it's how do you end a movie about uh, you know a dense uh, uh, lyrical movie about a character who. Uh, feel that thinks they are the chosen one who finds out that they are not the chosen one and they're just a pawn in this story. Um, and then giving that character that important sequence and giving them their part in this grander story and that resolution so that when he lies there dying in the snow, this is not all been for naught. Instead, he actually got to play part in something important. He got to be real. He got to matter. That's the thing about being a replicant is you don't matter. And he got to matter in something far bigger than himself. Because he'll be remembered for that. He's the one who brought Deckard to his daughter and who knows what's going to happen after that. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's my question. Mm -hmm. Even if he's not remembered, he still did it and he mattered. And he, he he transcended his programming Mm -hmm. as it was. Yes. I just, I need somebody to explain to me why it matters that Deckard got to his daughter. That, that hasn't have anything to do with sentimentality. Well, I I mean, I think that points up, that points to one of my big issues with this movie is, and I'm, you know, I'm going to make a confession here that might cause violent disagreement is that, I don't think the Blade Runner movies, and this one in particular, did, does a very good job of conveying the replicant human conflict. In my opinion, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you you get a bu- you get a few references to it. Like um, uh, Ryan Gosling's character has a, a like a replicant slur spray painted on his on his um, on his door, and you know all yeah. the cops are, are cu- cursing him out at the beginning of the film. But I think of a movie like uh, Children of Men, you know, and I know I'm comparing it to one of the greatest movies of all time, but like Children of Men, I feel like that movie does a great job at explaining the uh, the sorry state of the world and, and how refugees in that world are like this second class right. citizen. Like, right. And it does so using extras. It does so using like all these scenes that are seemingly extraneous that kind of uh, do a lot to give a, fill out this world a, a little bit. And so – when the character of Freysa at the you know who's you see earlier in the movie but is properly introduced about you know 15 minutes before the end of the film says like come join our robot uprising i just didn't care that much because i just didn't feel mm-hmm. like robots versus humans was set up as the central conflict uh, I, not that it wasn't set up as a central conflict, but that that it wasn't brought to life in a way that really mattered to me um, cargo mm-hmm. what do you what do you think of that do you disagree uh, i do um, yeah please uh, yeah, no, I what I honestly think is I think the big thing about the ending is here we have this character uh, who is locked behind glass, who has believed her entire life that she is uh, just a human being uh, living, you know, who's too sick to go outside that glass. And that's all a lie. And she, bringing Decker to her, she is about to have the truth revealed to her. Yeah. And there's a whole group of people that this woman is going to inspire to move on, not to be a, in a war against humans and, and replicants that will probably happen because there is no freeing of slaves that yep. has happened in history just because the slaves said, we want to go. And people said, all right, we're cool with that. So of course there's going to be some kind of bloodshed there, but that's not what that's about. What that's about is this is 
the this is the freeing of the prophet. This is the the revelation that there is a future for uh, the replicants that the replicants were really want to believe exists. And mm-hmm. this is that freeing moment. We're just not seeing that. This movie this movie violates all of the rules of mainstream Hollywood right now um, and gives us a s- storytelling in a way that we're being told we're not allowed to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And this movie does not tie it up neatly in a bow for the audience. This movie takes us right to the precipice and lets us continue to think about the movie as we leave. Um, so Yeah. Jeff Kanata, do you buy it? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think you put that in beautifully, and I, yes. and I wish that I felt that way. Uh, but I ended up feeling like it was a bit of a cop-out, that uh, there are all of these loose threads uh, that none of which seems to take priority, and we are left with something that has sentimental value but nothing else. It is a – it is it is naked sentimentality in in the place of import. Like there's feel, nothing important that happens there. I feel like it can have both. By the way, like that character, who she is, she is what they say she is. She's a replicant born from two other replicants. Uh, the movie doesn't quite define what we would call the human soul, but I think Joshi at one point has a very like stilted argument uh, with Kay. It's very it's very like clear what she's trying to refer to is like oh humans have souls and you don't and you know you've gotten fine gotten along fine without having a soul and i love gosling's look in that moment of like oh that's that's how inferior i am like i'll never be real because i don't have this this is a replicant by definition of humans which uh, is born which is created and grown and evolves just like a human does and i think uh, on a philosophical level you would say this replicant has a soul so if replicants are at this level, like effectively, she is no different than any human from what we've seen. Well, why, I, I think okay, where, so, I, yeah. where I agree with you, Jeff, is that uh, it does feel like with with Frasis character coming in like almost near the end and and setting up this conflict. It does feel mm-hmm. like this is trying to set up a sequel that's going to come in 35 years, you know, like right. it does, <laughs> for however long. Or right. Next it, year. It, it does it feel like a sequel like, for much sooner. Yeah. It just, <laughs> it feels like kind of an incomplete movie in some ways. Um, mm. Even, even as I agree with Cargill and Devendra, who've put it very beautifully, like what that last scene represents, mm-hmm. uh, it, it still does feel kind of like, yeah, there, there, it's like kind of a serial, there's kind of this serialization element that I didn't feel like with the first film. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if the, and if the idea of, Replicants, at, I mean, the replicant is never really fully defined in either film. But if we're to believe that Harrison Ford Deckard is a replicant, then we are to believe that replicants age like humans well, do. Well, no, we, so the Nexus, the opening crawl text uh, did say like that the models after Nexus 6 aged normally and right yeah. now the blade runner's job is to take out those those are replicants that are more um agreeable you know they don't have this motivation for life or for more but they they follow commands better but they also age fully because come on come on like why would you make a killer product a, a great product that probably is very expensive and have it give it a lifespan of like four or five years right i do think like there there's definitely a desire for that. you work for yeah. apple that's true. That's true. Oh, you want oh, people to keep oh, buying it, right? Zing. That is very true. Nice. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that is just the answer, they, Jeff. Just that when we when they thought we were anti-Samsung, we get an Apple Zinger. <laughs> in there. Mm, mm. Um, uh, so I want to bring no, up. No, no, one... no, no. But but I want to I want to 
express my point here, which is that so okay, the only time we've ever seen a replicant come into existence is when Jared Leto hatches one from a bag, mm-hmm. right? And it's a fully formed adult human. Uh, and so, and I always assumed if we're talking about replicants, we're talking about a a robot human that is made in a in a store, right? Made in a at a warehouse, made in a um, assembly line or whatever. You don't make it as a baby that grows, and therefore, and it doesn't grow. It's uh, a, yeah, it's yeah. It, it's it looks like Harrison Ford. It's always looked like Harrison Ford. It will always look like Harrison. But Ford. in the it's first gonna... movie, we do see the parts, right? We see the eyes. We see yeah. the individual components from that one scientist. Sure. So we, it is yeah, this biological are, thing that's put together. Or, they seem yeah. organic, sure. Yeah. But I, philosophically. I think you would have, you know, obviously this isn't the information future as, <laughs> as we've established. Uh, so we're not going to have, uh, you know, lots of podcasts or, or, or uh, talking heads TV shows debating this issue. But I think in this universe, you could have people very clearly making the case that it doesn't matter whether it's born or not. If it, if it has a lifespan, like mm-hmm. if it grows and ages and starts one way and, and becomes another, it's not just a static machine. Uh, so I don't understand how, you know, you can create a machine that comes together with another machine and creates a third machine that, that isn't, that doesn't seem to be a miracle of life. Mm. So you're you're just unconvinced by the premise (laughs) of, of the movie in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I don't don't know what to tell you right now, Jeff. Like it's, you know, you know how magic tricks work. You have to accept certain premises, right? Like if you accept the premise that a robot person, if you if we're questioning if robot people have souls, and if two robot people can bone and reproduce naturally, like I think that that opens up some different expectations. Like that is a new creature born without human intervention at all. Humans did nothing. Right. right. And that is very, very strange and different, I would say. Yeah, okay. I, I think first of all, first of all, let me just finish my thought before we attack me. <laughs> yeah. Uh okay. <laughs> First of all, my point is that if Deckard is not a replicant, if he was never a replicant, if he is a human being who ages like human beings do and replicants don't age, and his semen got into a replicant and created this new third thing, that is way bigger a deal, way bigger a deal than the fact that a re- a one machine and another machine created a third machine, which is not – we do that now. Machines we can say can they're create... both big deals. Uh-huh. Like either let, way, let Jeff, let yeah. Jeff finish. Let Jeff finish. Okay. Are you done, Jeff? I w- my my point is that where this movie ends up, which is just that a father gets back to his daughter, does not convey any sense of import about the central question that the movie raises. It it, it means nothing. We are to think. Okay, well, you know, he's back with her, so she's going to get out of the bubble and help the resistance in some really undefined. Well, the resistance wants the father dead too. Don't forget. But I just don't understand. I don't. I feel like this is a massive cop out because we get no sense of why him meeting her matters at all. It is a sentimental moment that lands in a beautiful way, and we, if if our movie is about Joe, which is which it ostensibly is, uh, then there's some sense of of completion of a quest or a journey. And we get some kind of cathartic moment with him coming to rest at the end. But that only matters if he did something important. And the movie just completely doesn't care about letting us know why that's important. Other than it feels nice for a father to meet his daughter. 
All right. That's my uh, issue at the end. Well, uh, yeah, I I come somewhere in between on uh, this issue between you guys. You know, I think I think uh, there is a lot of uh, emotion to the ending that Cargill was talking about, and but I also agree with Jeff to some degree that like the movie could have done more uh, to make you understand, you know, the plot machinations behind that, or the the emotional import of, or not the emotional, the just the import of that moment of the meeting. Like, right. what happens next? You know, that's a that's an open question. Uh, that it sounds like Jeff would like to have answered, and the movie purposely chose to not really do a good job of answering. I, I um, don't disagree with that, but guys, like movies we love, like it's it's okay for certain things not to get fully wrapped up. I'd say, like what 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 happens to Darth Vader after the end of Star Wars? <laughs> well, look, it just flies I, I, away. It just flies away. Well, but I think I, I think this this movie as a whole. I mean, in following as a direct sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner didn't wrap everything up neatly right. in a bow, and I think right. that's entirely. I think the whole point of this movie was to make ponderous science fiction that had a bunch of friends sit around for two hours debating <laughs> the realities of the story, let alone the philosophies that those those things tug at. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. that this movie does it very. Uh, eloquently agreed 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 cargill uh on that note uh we should probably wrap up soon but uh other grab bag things i want to bring up guys the action scene that happens in las vegas uh with the holographic elvis Mm -hmm. uh incredible like I, i almost lost my mind because of how good that like how inventive that was just showing off yeah, exactly. it, it just, it just is do. like I've, I just watched it. And I'm like, I've never seen anything like that before, uh, where you have like a hologram and like the sound is out of sync. So it's like a hologram yeah. that's like broken, uh, and it, it gives I you just, a sense of what life was like before shit went bad, too. You know? Yeah, it's, like, uh, it's just yeah. oh, so so good. Are there any other Cargill? Any other thing you want to highlight about the movie we haven't talked about yet? Uh, no, I think, I think we covered pretty much all of it. I mean, it's, uh, I will, what I will say that none of us really said was, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, Deckard is in this movie and they made a big deal about that in the trailer and the poster and for making such a big deal of it, man, is he barely in that movie? <laughs> well, the, the, yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. this is a thing that I, that has been a big part of, of this show. And I, I'm sure Dave and Devendra will be pissed that I bring it up yet again, but, uh, I, <laughs> I, I think nothing makes a better case for trying to protect oneself from knowing anything than this movie, where I guarantee all of us several times in this movie went, eh, I wonder when Harrison Ford's showing up. <laughs> sure. It's, yeah, right? it's true. Absolutely. It's true. But if we didn't know he was even in this movie, what a fucking amazing thing that would be if would, he just that, walked around Would that the be better? Because I actually think this is this is a head fake. They were like, hey, Harrison Ford, look at his big no. face on that big poster. And we're like, oh, man, where's Harrison Ford? Where's it just Harrison pulls Ford? you out of it over and over going, I wonder I, where that Harrison Ford is. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's a different experience. But, Jeff, you fundamentally want to believe that the unsullied experience is the best. So, you know, I can't argue that. Uh there I agree uh, with Cargill. Yeah. Like he doesn't. Sh- I actually like looked at my watch. He actually yeah. doesn't show up until like an hour and fifty minutes into this. Yes, you know, two hour and forty five minute long movie, uh, and that is notable because the the, journey, the emotional journey essentially becomes Harrison Ford's after. Yeah. Uh, after he appears, I mean, there's a whole scene with you know Rachel showing up and all that stuff. Like uh, Joe basically passes the baton back to Harrison Ford when he shows up. So mm-hmm. yeah. and just uh, in time too, like f- because he's less important. Yeah. As a character, like we soon learn. Yeah. 
what amused me in, in a very meta sense was uh, there was a, a thing on television, an interview last week in which uh, Harrison Ford forgot Ryan Gosling's name and, <laughs> in, in an interview. And like everybody made a lot of like beef out of that. And in watching the movie, I'm like, well, of course he forgot his name. He was he worked with him for like a day and a half yeah. and two days tops. <laughs> Harrison like, Ford just shot that whole thing in his pajamas. You well, know, yeah, like he, uh, didn't, he didn't even get into wardrobe. Keith Calder pointed out that you, if you notice, Harrison Ford is the only character who basically looks like he's wearing, you know, pajama clothes from t- the 21st century. Like his yeah. his one condition for showing up to to being in this movie was I must be able to just wear the clothes on my back right now. I mean, yeah. his clothes just yeah, doesn't match any of the clothes in the movie. De- Deckard needs to look so badass, man. He's just like he's fully given up. Yeah. Well, I mean, why? Why wouldn't he? I mean, and that's kind of that. That I think is a beautiful illustration of his character. He's a guy who fell in love and lost the love of his life and had to hide his own child and yeah. is hiding away in, in the a, worst in the city radio, in America, yeah. in the radioactive wastes of Las Vegas, <laughs> like drinking his life away. Like, yeah. of course, of course, he's a miserable wretch that doesn't care about what he looks like anymore. It kind of makes sense. And mm-hmm. by the way, that whole scene, like them fighting and also the drink. Oh, the, him drinking and, and you know sometimes to love someone you have to be a stranger yeah. uh, great performance yeah. overall but also that whole scene like gosling's character is like this is my daddy <laughs> like, yeah. man yeah. Uh, you're so disappointing <laughs> as a father um i do kind of love seeing that scene and like how he is trying to deal with this relationship uh there well, I, I think it, don't you think it was fascinating that during that whole conversation mm-hmm. he didn't say hey you're my dad and then yeah. harrison ford would, would have said no i'm not that would really sped things up <laughs> an amazing an amazing moment like what no <laughs> there are definitely think pieces to be written too about harrison ford as uh, the uh, distant father of 80s kids, like between this movie and Force Awakens, like that, that is who he represents. I you almost know, almost did a boom goes dynamite about that. Culture. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there's that. Um, also, we didn't talk about that insane synchronization sequence that they make Kay go through. Oh, and it doesn't so it doesn't make any sense. And you so can't good. even. What does it mean? Like cells within cells. I don't know, but I loved every bit of it. But if you wrote it differently, it wouldn't yeah. work as well. Like it's so specifically awesome and so <laughs> yeah. perfect. Like the just the sound of those words. It's it's so good. You're talking about the way he so gets good. down to baseline, right? Like, yes. yeah. So it's the like, idea is that I think they're measuring like his his uh, reaction time, right? And the idea is that he's supposed to be able to repeat these words instantaneously, and if he mm-hmm. can't, that something is wrong with his programming somehow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but damn, it, it's like like this movie's version of Voight-Kampf, basically, right? It's like yeah. Well, they uh, have a portable Voight-Kampf now, which is kind of interesting. Or the eye tester. Yeah, that's right. Nice. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is the movie's Voight-Kampf, I guess. And it's so like it's inscrutable. It's inscrutable in a really fascinating way. And yeah. I think once that scene happened, I was like, I am on board with this movie. Like I know you're just like Villeneuve. Like you are just doing your thing, and no one's telling you to like break this down and explain it for the audience, and you know give me a voiceover about what this is actually about. Uh, this movie is such a you know such a unique thing and i think that particular sequence sold it for me mm. all right well uh we will leave it there i mean guys this has been a really fun conversation we could probably talk about this for another like half hour but i think we for should sure. wrap it up now uh find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com email us at slashfilmcast@gmail.com. And uh, our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. See uh, Robert Cargill, where can people buy your latest book, Sea of Rust? 
uh, wherever you buy books. It's available in bookstores. You can find it on uh, uh, on any of these services. You can listen if you're an audiobook person. It's available on audible.com. Uh, and I believe it's also available in CD form uh, if you are uh, somebody who likes physical media. But yeah, any way you digest your books, you can find Sea of Rust. And you can find me uh, on Twitter at MassaWorm, M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M. Cargill, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, Devendra Hardor, where can you find more of your work on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra, and I write about tech at Engadget.com. Uh, I'll be writing something about Blade Runner 2049 soon and how it, you know, expands on the AI themes of the original. So look for that. How about you, Jeff Kanata? Well, I have several other shows for you. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. Uh, I do two video game shows, a weekly video game show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC, and a daily quick hit, just 10 minutes a day, video game show called Newest, Latest, Best, you can find it on iTunes or Google Play Music or at anchor.fm slash NLB. And I have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns that you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. Find all of my stuff at davechen.net. And next week, I- I'm going to tell you what our plan is for next week. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually going to happen. Um, but our plan is to review Happy Death Day with Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm seeing it tomorrow, Dave, so we better be reviewing it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I hope I hope that happens. Um, otherwise, we may, you know, see like do the foreigner or something like that instead. But uh, that's the plan. Um, Stephen has said yes, but you know, I don't know what his schedule, whether it'll change or not. So uh, that's what we'll try to do next week on the Slash Filmcast, uh, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. <laughs>